Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Ads shouldn't be the scariest thing about true crime. Start listening by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash true crime ad free. That's amazon.com slash true crime ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Chocolates are sweet, but they don't last long. Flowers are pretty, and then they're gone. So this Mother's Day, why not give your mum the gift that keeps on giving with Ancestry DNA? Ancestry DNA is on sale now for $99, a saving of $30. Ancestry DNA won't just tell your mum where her ancestors are from, it can also pinpoint the specific regions within those countries, connecting mum to the places where her story started. Ancestry DNA lets us look back across centuries to see where her family lived and where they moved. Combined with Ancestry's massive database of official records, this can open up fascinating migration stories. Who knows? Give your mum Ancestry DNA this Mother's Day and she might even discover living relatives. I know it's possible because it happened for me. Ancestry DNA is safe, easy to use and completely private. When your mum gets the kit, she just sends back a small saliva sample using the prepaid postal box provided. In a few weeks, she'll receive an email with the links to her results. From there, your mother has control of the data and how she uses it. There could be more to your mum's story. Piece it together with Ancestry DNA, now on sale. Terms apply. I'm Michael Adams and this is part two of the Forgotten Australia episode, Arizona Ryan and the Sydney Shootout. In part one of this episode, we heard how a self-styled American cowboy named Albert Herbert Ryan became a hero after he shot dead gunman Lee Hin to end a long police siege in Sydney in June 1919. Dubbed Arizona Ryan in the press, he told colourful stories of his past, including that he'd served in the Spanish-American War, that he'd spent a lot of time in Arizona, and that as a Los Angeles deputy sheriff, he'd been called on many times to use his gun in the cause of justice. Everything that Arizona said was taken at face value, but how much of it was actually true? Just like he said, Albert Herbert Ryan was born in Indianapolis, Indiana on the 20th of November, 1876. His father, Robert, was a sign painter and his mother, Eve, looked after Albert and his younger brother. By the mid-1890s, the family had resettled in Los Angeles and that's when Albert's experience with the police and revolvers began. Except he was on the wrong side of the law as a troublemaking and trigger-happy teenager. In early July 1896, when a neighbourhood man put up a fence to stop people trespassing on his land, the fence was demolished overnight. The man rebuilt his fence only for it to be torn down again the next night. On the third night, Albert Ryan was caught ripping up the fence. He was arrested and taken to jail. Albert was bailed out, but he was back before the courts within two weeks for threatening a Chinese shopkeeper with a revolver. 
five witnesses testified that Albert had entered the man's store, opened a showcase and handled some goods. An argument broke out, he called the shopkeeper all kinds of names and then pulled his gun, daring the man to come outside and fight. Albert had also claimed to be an officer of the law. But when an actual policeman arrived on the scene, Albert wasn't arrested because he had a permit to carry the gun. And the evidence of one white man was believed over the contradictory accounts of six Chinese men. Albert was only arrested after the shopkeeper made an official complaint. Albert's story was that he'd come into the store to buy a lottery ticket, gotten into an argument and been threatened with a club, which was why he'd then pulled his gun. He was believed and allowed to go free and to keep his gun permit. But Albert had another revolver-based run-in with the law just a few weeks later. Feeling a little lonely one night, he decided to lift his spirits with a bit of target shooting, much to the alarm of his neighbours who called the police. The attending officer gave Albert a warning against such artillery practice. Albert responded that because he had a permit, he had the right to fire his gun whenever and wherever he liked. The law disagreed strongly and his gun permit was revoked, with the police commissioners saying that he wasn't a proper person to be entrusted with firearms. Young Albert might have been trouble, but he was also capable of bravery. In September 1896, when a horse broke free from its wagon on a city street and threw its owner, causing considerable injuries, Albert sprang into action. Chasing the horse, Albert caught it and stopped the animal from inflicting further harm, in the words of the Los Angeles Herald, at considerable risk to himself. Six months later, in February 1897, Albert was again willing to put himself in harm's way when he enlisted in the US Navy. He started as a coal passer, which means he helped feed the boilers of these steamships. From March 1898, just as he had told the Sydney newspapers, Albert saw action in the Spanish-American War and also in the more dangerous, if less remembered, Philippine-American War. It was while aboard the USS Manila in June 1900 that he again proved his bravery by diving from his ship to rescue another sailor. In February 1901, after four years of service, Albert was discharged from the US Navy, having attained the rank of machinist mate first class, which, as he told the Australian press, was an engineering rating. But in November 1901, Albert, who was a registered socialist, was again in trouble with the law for disturbing the peace. Albert was part of a left-wing protest trying to enforce the boycott of a Los Angeles hotel that was owned by a man whose other business interests pitted him against the working class. Wearing his sailor's uniform, even though he was no longer in the Navy, Albert carried a huge sign that read, The proprietor of the original Mug Saloon is not fair to organised labour. Boys, keep away. Egged on by other unionists, Albert stalked up and down the corner of First and Main Streets in the centre of Los Angeles, shouting and drawing a crowd. 
When a man tried to enter the pub, an argument broke out and it was alleged that Albert attacked him with a club. A riot looked set to erupt and a policeman arrived and arrested both men. Bailed out by his comrades, Albert returned to the picket line to take up his sign again. Threatened with arrest, he stood his ground, saying it was his right to protest. But he was arrested again on the charge of inciting a riot and he was refused bail. But the law was on his side, with a judge ordering his release. When Albert appeared in court on the original charge of disturbing the peace, he was convicted, but he appealed and was granted a new trial in July 1902, only for the district attorney to drop the charge. In mid-1905, living in San Diego, Albert was working at the Normandy Hotel when he was again arrested, this time for biting off part of a man's ear during a street fight. He went to trial twice and again didn't get any prison time. That he walked free might be just as well because if Albert had been behind bars on the 21st of July 1905, several men might have lost their lives. At 10.30 that morning in San Diego Harbour, a boiler exploded on the gunboat USS Bennington, blowing men and machinery into the air and ripping open the hull to the sea. The Bennington would have sunk if not for a tugboat pushing it into the shallows. As it was, 66 men were killed instantly or died soon after of their injuries. Albert was rowing a boat on the harbour when the disaster happened and he rescued some of the survivors by hauling them into his boat. Eleven survivors from the Bennington were awarded the Medal of Honour, but Albert's actions went unacknowledged, though his bravery was reported in articles about the disaster that were published in newspapers from coast to coast. It's not clear when Albert married the first of the three wives he told Sydney newspapers he'd had, but the Los Angeles Herald listed him filing for divorce from Lena Ryan in August 1908. In December the next year, Albert and his fondness for fisticuffs and revolvers saw him make the pages of the Los Angeles Times. He was working as a foreman for a roadwork company and got into an argument with a Mexican member of his crew. When the man hurled Spanish insults, Albert punched him in the face. The man punched him right back. When the man supposedly went for a rock, Albert pulled out his revolver and smashed the Mexican in the head. A crowd gathered, cheering for more bloodshed but police arrived and took Albert and the man to jail. Both would plead guilty to disturbing the peace and be fined $5. But why did Albert Ryan, roadwork foreman, have a revolver? The LA Times described him as also being a deputy constable. This didn't make him, as he would tell Sydney newspapers, a deputy sheriff, but it was a law enforcement role, even if a part-time one, that came in for criticism because appointed deputy constables often wielded their badges and guns to settle personal grievances. And this was exactly the case in September 1910 when the police arrested Albert 
for disturbing the peace while trying to arrest a man with whom he was having an argument. He pleaded guilty and was fined $10. In between these two not particularly shining examples from his law enforcement career, Albert did, just as he told the Sydney newspapers, get involved in the Nicaraguan Revolution. Late 1909 was a dangerous time to be a US citizen in this Central American nation, with the Liberal government facing a right-wing revolution led by General Chamorro. In mid-November, two American mercenaries fighting for the general's army had been executed by the government. This led to the US President, William Taft, severing diplomatic relations with Nicaragua, forming the Nicaraguan Expeditionary Squadron and sending two warships carrying 700 Marines there to protect American interests and help the rebels. On the 9th of February 1910, the gunboat USS Vicksburg was in port at Corinto, Nicaragua, when its captain, Alexander Halstead, was ordered to take on board a distressed seaman, Albert Herbert Ryan. Its logbook for that day, written in the captain's own hand, records that he was under orders from Admiral Kimball, commander of the Nicaraguan Expeditionary Squadron, to provide Albert with rations and passage back to the US. Upon arriving in San Francisco, Albert now called himself a war correspondent for a Los Angeles newspaper. It was a terrible trip and the hardships I endured were indescribable, he told the San Francisco Examiner. I had several narrow escapes from capture as I stole through the military lines on my way to the battlefield, where non-combatants were rigidly barred. I wanted to learn the campaign plans and map out the proposed attack. I left Leon on January the 19th on muleback, bent on winning my way through the lines and over the rugged mountains to the camp of the revolutionists, where I was determined to get an interview with General Shamaro in command of the insurgents. My life was risked a dozen times a day. Albert told the newspaper that the government had threatened him with execution because he knew too much about the revolution. The rival newspaper, San Francisco Call, saw fit to inject a note of cynicism when it reported, the vessel brought back a distressed American seaman, A.H. Ryan, who claimed to be a war correspondent. They were right to doubt him. If Albert was a war correspondent for a Los Angeles newspaper, then why was he giving his scoop to a newspaper in San Francisco? Indeed, a few years later, Albert told a San Pedro newspaper that he had acted as a spy for the insurgents. Given the insurgents were right-wing revolutionaries, this was in itself curious because Albert at one time had been such a committed socialist that he'd risked jail to protest for working men's rights. Having escaped Nicaragua, Albert went back to live in his family's home in Los Angeles, but from February 1911 to May 1913, he spent a lot of time in Ensenada in Baja, Mexico. 
These dates fit perfectly with the Magonista rebel campaign, which began on the 29th of January 1911 with the capture of Mexicali as the first step to capturing Ensenada and establishing a socialist state. One of the reasons this campaign failed? It alienated ordinary Mexicans because half of the troops fighting were white Americans from across the border. Which side was Albert fighting on? It's not clear. But this record fits with what he said in Sydney about getting mixed up in the Mexican Revolution. Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Ads shouldn't be the scariest thing about true crime. Start listening by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash true crime ad free. That's amazon.com slash true crime ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Back in the United States and living in the Los Angeles harbour community of San Pedro, Albert was still able to wield his deputy constable's badge and gun. In August 1913, he arrested a suspicious character at the Pacific Electric train terminal. When this man supposedly resisted arrest, Albert cracked him over the head so hard with his gun that it bent the barrel out of alignment. The man was taken to hospital for stitches. The charge? Vagrancy. In San Pedro, Albert Working again as a boat engineer, lived at the National Hotel and began wooing its owner, Sophia Rosenfeld. Sophia was 43, six years older than Albert, and since the death of her husband Morris in 1912, she was a wealthy widow. She not only owned the hotel, but she also owned an apartment block and other real estate with her total assets valued at $48,000, which is about $1.3 million today. She and Albert took road trips when such a thing was still novel enough to be reported in San Pedro's newspapers. But all of Sophia's friends were surprised when, after just a few months of friendship, she and Albert got married in a civil ceremony in Los Angeles on New Year's Eve 1913. Her new husband didn't bring any assets at all to the marriage, though he proved his spiritual commitment to Sophia by converting to Judaism. While Sophia was well known and well respected in San Pedro, Albert Ryan was pretty much unknown. Just a week into their marriage, Sophia did something extraordinary when she gave her two adult sons real estate to the value of $23,000. This halved the assets that she and Albert owned, though they retained the hotel and the apartment building. Sophia's timing was curious. Maybe she was just, as she said, setting her boys up for life but it also kind of looked like she was ensuring that they got what was theirs. Yet Mr. and Mrs. Albert Ryan were reported as a happily married couple who were still fond of taking road trips in their fine and expensive Franklin touring car. But in August 1915, they nearly died in this vehicle. 
Albert was at the wheel in Portland, Oregon, when he drove down a long hill and straight into the path of a freight train roaring towards a level crossing. I shouted to my wife, he told the Los Angeles Daily News, grabbed her and threw her clear of the machine. As I jumped, the engine struck our car squarely in the middle and smashed it. I dived and lay flat on my face so that no wreckage went over me. Mrs. Ryan fell beyond it, but she was bruised by the force with which I threw her. The circumstances appeared bizarre. How had Albert wound up on the tracks, unable to drive clear, but with enough time to do all of that? If this wasn't an accident, if this was some sort of abortive attempt at something more sinister or suicidal, then Sophia didn't seem to suspect because she and Albert were soon again going on road trips all over California. And if there was any doubt about Albert being a stand-up guy, what happened next seemed to confirm he was a hero. One night in March 1916, hearing noise on the sidewalk outside of the National Hotel, he grabbed his trusty revolver and rushed outside wearing only a nightshirt. Albert saw two men who'd burgled a nearby hardware store. The crims ran and he gave chase and pursued them for two miles on foot. Coming to rough ground proved a problem because Albert wasn't wearing any shoes. So Albert took aim and fired his revolver, hitting one of the men who went down wounded. Albert held him until police arrived and after a detour to the hotel to put on some clothes, he helped the cops find and arrest the other burglar. Newspaper reports of this event didn't refer to Albert being a deputy constable, so this was him simply acting as a concerned citizen. A concerned citizen who was willing to shoot a man from behind even when he wasn't posing any clear threat to life. Five months later, in August 1916, Albert left San Pedro, bound for Hawaii for one month, where it was said rather vaguely that he was training for a new career. Not long after his return, in October 1916, Albert's marriage to Sophia was suddenly over. He moved out of the hotel and she sought a divorce on the grounds of cruelty. No sooner had this hit the newspapers than Albert was at the police station to report that his automobile had been stolen. He promptly made an insurance claim, as the policy was in his name, though Sophia and her sons claimed the car belonged not to him, but to the family. Then, in the first week of November, Albert took out a newspaper advertisement offering a $20 reward to anyone who'd give evidence that would hold up in court against anyone slandering his character or impeaching his honesty. Further, he said he'd give anyone who would act as a witness for him in a damages suit 10% of the damages awarded by the court. This seemed the behaviour of a desperate man. On the 13th of November, Albert appeared in court representing himself in the divorce suit and requested that the judge set the trial for the following April. But matters came to a head much sooner than that when Albert was charged with assault and battery of two men, 
which on the 4th of January 1917 earned him a 180-day suspended sentence. That meant that if Albert broke the law in any way, he'd be sent to prison to serve that time. Four days later, on the 8th of January, just after 4pm, Albert entered the National Hotel. He was unwelcome there and acting strangely, so Sophia called the police. Albert told her he just wanted to talk, but then he asked for a kiss. When his estranged and frightened wife refused, he pulled out an automatic pistol. Goodbye, Sophia, he said. Then Albert shot himself in the chest. Police arrived and took him to hospital, where his wound wasn't found to be life-threatening. The bullet had deflected off a rib, passed around his body, and exited through his back. But discharging a firearm within the city limits was an offence, and that automatically triggered his 180-day prison sentence. After 20 years of run-ins with the police, Albert Herbert Ryan was finally going to see the inside of a prison cell. Albert didn't serve the full sentence and was out in late May and able to speak on his own behalf at the divorce proceedings. It might have been better if he hadn't. In court, Albert admitted to having shot himself because Sophia wouldn't kiss him. He rambled, trying to claim some sort of moral high ground. She is very wealthy and has an income of between $400 and $500 a month, but she found that her money would not buy me, he said. In conclusion, and mixing up his words to the amusement of newspaper reporters, Albert asked the judge to, Just tie me loose. I have suffered enough. Sophia got the divorce and the restoration of her legal name to Sophia Rosenfeld. For good measure, the judge pilloried Albert. Based on the evidence, he said he'd cynically converted to Judaism while privately mocking his wife's religion. More seriously, the judge believed that he'd married Sophia to obtain a share of her property, an opinion that perhaps put their bizarre car accident in a different light. His reputation in tatters, Albert left San Pedro and lived in a hotel in San Francisco. Then, in early November 1918, in Eureka, California, he signed on to the motor schooner Carmen, which was taking a full load of timber to Sydney, Australia. This was the true Albert Herbert Ryan that Australia had acclaimed as being the real-life answer to cinematic cowboys like William Hart and Tom Mix. There was much in his past that spoke of a reckless and even dangerous man who seemed to seek out or provoke trouble and who would pull out his revolver at the slightest provocation. Arizona Ryan who appeared to have never done anything in the state of Arizona, let alone Texas, had reinvented himself by telling some truths, embellishing other facts, and omitting much that was shameful. If the full facts were known, would Australia have been so quick to acclaim him as a hero and give him a free pass for killing a man? 
Possibly they still would have because Arizona had told the truth twice about how he'd ended Lee Hin's life. Then I jumped in right close, he had told the son, and pumped the rest of the gun into his head to save a trial and expense. He was probably dead after the first two shots, he had told the coroner, but I fired a few more to make sure of him. Had Lee Hin still posed a threat after Arizona's first two bullets had hit him? It didn't sound that way at all from Albert's testimony, and yet he'd pulled the trigger four more times anyway. However, in the court of public opinion, and in the actual coroner's court, Arizona Ryan could do no wrong. It was no surprise that Arizona didn't stay unemployed for long. An American who could use a gun was valuable to the Union Steamship Company as a watchman, especially with the ongoing maritime strike as sailors sought better pay and conditions. So it was that Arizona Ryan, one-time socialist who'd boycotted a hotel in support of the working man, now found himself wielding a revolver for the man. And it wouldn't be long before he pulled the trigger again. Even a month after he shot Lee Hin, Arizona was still being celebrated. Worth Brothers Circus had included Arizona on its new program, announcing that on Tuesday the 8th of July, the conqueror of the Mad Chinaman would be presented with a new cult service revolver by a few of his admirers. But the day before that celebration of Australia's favourite adopted cowboy, police were called at 12.30pm to the Union Steamship Wharf, where they found a crowd of people gathered around an agitated Arizona Ryan and two wounded men. A constable asked Arizona what had happened. I shot that there. If he comes near me again, I'll shoot him again. Arizona was pointing to William Mullins, a seaman from the Manuka, which was docked at the wharf. Mullins had facial injuries and was bleeding from the head. His Manuka shipmate, David Robertson, had also been roughed up. Both men were taken to the hospital. In court the next day, Arizona said he'd been going about his duties as a watchman when the two seamen had knocked him down. One had tried to kick him and he'd fired his gun in self-defence. But William Mullins told a very different story. Robertson and I were going off the wharf, he said. Ryan stopped us and said we couldn't get past him. I'm a detective, he said. Arizona refused to show the men his detective identification and so Mullins said he was going to pass. That's when Arizona pushed both him and Robertson. I'll shoot you, he said. Mullins testified. He pulled a revolver out and pointed at me and told me to get back. Seeing the gun and not knowing who this threatening man was, Robertson grappled with Arizona. During the fight, Arizona aimed the gun at Mullins, who was coming to his mate's aid. He pulled the trigger. The bullet hit Mullins in his chest, but was stopped by the union book and wallet he had in his coat pocket. David Robertson told the court the same story, adding that Arizona had bashed him over the head with the butt of his revolver 
and when their fight was over, had yelled insults to men watching from the Manuka, saying they were cowards, that he'd fight them all, and that if anyone else came onto the wharf, he'd shoot them too. Ryan was very excited, he said. I took him to be either drunk or mad. Another Manuka crew member, who'd seen the whole thing from the ship, confirmed the men's stories. Arizona was remanded to stand trial in August for shooting with intent to do bodily harm and was allowed out on £60 bail, which he paid with the £10 in his pocket and the £50 reward he'd received that very day for killing Lee Hin. Given he was a foreign national scheduled to stand trial on a serious charge, it seems likely that Arizona was required to hand over his American passport. That would certainly explain why on the 30th of July 1919, he was at the American consulate in Sydney applying for an emergency passport for himself and his wife. But Arizona didn't flee Sydney because he didn't have to. With the end of the maritime strike, all the important witnesses went back to work and set sail. When Albert's court case came around, some witnesses were at sea, others were in America, and yet others were in parts unknown. The judge said the Crown had no case and directed the jury to find Arizona not guilty, which they did, and he walked free. On the 10th of September 1919, Arizona and his wife Ethel sailed for America on the Ventura. Before he left, he had one last thing to say to the press. You'll hear more about me, don't worry. Arriving back in California, Albert told his story to the San Pedro Daily News, which, conveniently forgetting his shameful scandal with Sophia, dutifully reported his heroism in Sydney, the reward he'd received, and that he'd been made a special detective with the Union Steamship Company. It also included this claim. He achieved fame here first and came to the notice of the police when he entered a launch in the harbour seeking a maddened father who had shot one of his boys and was attempting to shoot the other. The crazed father had stood off fishermen who had attempted to interfere to save the boys. Ryan entered the launch fearlessly and found that after barricading himself, the father had realised the enormity of his crime and had committed suicide. This broadly fit with what Arizona had told the Sydney coroner about chasing a fugitive on a boat only to find he'd committed suicide. But there's no record in the California newspapers of Albert Ryan performing such a brave act. And it's a tragedy that would have surely been reported widely. What the San Pedro Daily News didn't hear about from the newly returned Albert, of course, was that but for a lucky wallet and union book, he might have been stuck in a Sydney prison for murdering William Mullins. Instead, Albert told the newspaper that while he'd enjoyed his visit south of the equator, he was glad to be back home. Surprisingly, Albert did seem to have learned from his experiences in Australia. 
Despite what he'd said in his farewell to the Sydney newspaper men, you'll hear more about me, don't worry. Little more was heard from him for the next quarter century. Albert and Ethel remained in the Los Angeles area. He still worked on ships as an engineer, but he was in port often enough to have 13 children with his wife before she passed away in 1939, aged just 40. Albert Ryan died in March 1947 at 70 years old. But before Albert died, he made one last newspaper appearance, and that was in the Chula Vista Star, a San Diego weekly, on the 24th of August, 1945. The article was headlined, Veteran of 48 Years in Navy Retires in Chula Vista. But the writer wasn't sure that headline did the man justice, and so began the article with, Hero Home from the Wars, might be the heading of a story about Albert H. Ryan, veteran of 48 years of service with the United States Navy. 48 years? That would mean he'd served continuously since 1897. The article continued. Ryan doesn't consider himself the hero type. He just enjoys life, and when a job came along for him to do, he has done it. The high point of his career, the article claimed, was when, 25 years after the USS Bennington disaster, Albert had finally been recognised by the Navy for meritorious conduct. Albert told the reporter that he'd just left the Bennington, this despite him no longer being in the Navy, and was about 50 feet from the ship when it exploded. The article said, He jumped from the shore and saw to the boat where he went down beneath the boilers to put in the emergency plug to prevent the ship from sinking. Ryan carried 23 bodies off the ship, many of them burned beyond recognition. Given what we know of Albert, this might seem another exaggeration, but he produced a letter from Washington for the reporter to quote from. It read in part, His coming aboard the Bennington immediately after the explosion of unknown cause was of great danger. His helping bring up injured men from compartments that were filled with steam and especially his going down in the fire rooms while the vessel was sinking and while also there was a danger of explosions in the forward magazines, these were acts of extreme heroism that should not go unrecognised by the Navy Department. Given this was a genuine act of heroism, it's curious that Albert didn't mention it to the Sydney newspapers. But... For a man who'd just shot another man dead, putting the emphasis on his career as a deputy sheriff back home made more sense if he was going to avoid doing time for a crime. Same as when, at nearly 70 years of age and talking to the Chula Vista star, Albert was all about his naval career, which may be why he now claimed to have served on a submarine in World War I but didn't mention his misadventures in law enforcement, his revolutionary activities in Nicaragua and Mexico, and that one time in distant Australia that he shot a man and became famous as Arizona Ryan. I'm Michael Adams, and you've been listening to Forgotten Australia. If you've enjoyed this episode, I'd love it if you could leave a review or rating 
And don't forget to subscribe so you get every episode as soon as it comes out. For more stories, photos and information about this and other episodes, go to ForgottenAustralia.com. There you'll also find information about my book, Australia's Sweetheart, which is about our forgotten movie star, Mary Maguire. This podcast was written and produced by me in the Blue Mountains of New South Wales on land traditionally owned by the Gundungurra and Darug people. As always, thanks for listening. Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Ads shouldn't be the scariest thing about true crime. Start listening by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash true crime ad free. That's amazon.com slash true crime ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.